Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 172 of my 16 music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 163 of May 16 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or in Stitcher or on iHeartRadio or on Google Play Music or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I am a 26-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slash and each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist and stickies and split the show in two parts. First part of the show, talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and do my own personality and arrange the song, which will include the chords, playing lyrics, and second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show, talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what studio the song was recorded at, talk about the session musicians that I played on the song, talk about the song or that wrote the song, Bruce that produced it, the musicians that played on it, uh, talk about the studio the song was recorded at, and the history behind the label song released on, and the peak of the song made originally on Billboard Hot 100 Trash when first came out, the year when the song was released, all that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on this week's episode of the podcast, I thought I'd let you guys know how my show went, um, you know, because... I, I really wish you guys would come to one of my gigs, you know, because you guys will get to hear really what I'm all about as a singer-songwriter, and, uh, you know, and I will say that, he, I'll give you two updates. One, I had played my gig, and I got a lot of cool, cool video of the of the, vid, of the show that I will be posting very, very soon. And two, um, you know, I got the got a rough cut of the music video I just shot back. I mean, well, I'm going to get it back very, very soon, and uh, yeah, so that's cool. And uh, three is that the, the me- next EP I'm recording right now is coming along very, very well. I have some basic tracks back, but um, I'm just waiting to, I'm going to record some more stuff very, very soon. So I'll keep you guys posted when those songs are almost done and when, the, when, they, when they're going to get mixed. But they're, we're very, very close to being done with the tracking of the, of the songs. I mean, we, there's one more song, there's one more song we have to start tracking for. We have to, we haven't tracked yet, but most of them are coming along very, very well. So I can't wait to release these songs very, very soon. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that by the summertime that the tracking will be done, the songs will be done, and I'll be able to keep, and I'll be able to release them by the summer. That's what I'm hoping for. But yeah. So, anyways, um, just want to keep you guys, give you guys those updates, and uh, and yeah, I'll definitely keep you guys posted on my next show. I don't want to, I kind of want to want to wait on playing any more gigs until my EP is out. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at right now because I'm st- I'm in the recording process for these songs, but they will be out very, very soon, hopefully by the summer, and uh, let's get started in this week's show. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's group, which is the Hollies, and the song Bus Stop. And more importantly, let's talk about the British invasion uh, for a minute, and uh, let's talk about that for a second, because, um, you know, it's been a while since I've done a British invasion artist on my podcast, or a British invasion group, and I think it's worth it to talk about the British invasion again just a little bit because I've dived into the history of the British invasion quite a lot of my podcast. But just in case you don't remember, it was this huge once in a lifetime phenomenon that happened in 1964 when the Beatles came to America, and it was this huge wave of British acts that just completely controlled and dominated the Billboard Hot 100 charts for a very long time into 64, 65, and 66. I mean. It was, this, it was this huge stampede of British acts that were coming from Manchester, they were coming from London, they were coming from Liverpool, they were coming from St. Albans, I mean, they were coming from all these different cities from, from, from London, and basically they were just, you know, basically taking over the pop charts, you know, one by one. I mean, it was like, first it was the Beatles, and then it was the Dave Clark Five from Tottenham, and then you had Dusty Springfield, and then you had... And then you had the Searchers, you know, and then you had uh, Patilla Clark, and then you had Chad and Jeremy, Peter and Gordon, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. I mean, you had Tom Jones, and then you had, I mean, it was like, it was crazy. Like the amount of Bert Wayne Fontana, Mindbenders, the Animals, Hermits, Hermits. I mean, it was just like, it, you know, Manford Man, there were so many groups that just single handedly stampeded 
onto the British invasion charts, and they all kind of had their unique little sound to them. But they, all these all these groups had a lot of different a lot, had one a, quite a few things in common. One of the first things that these groups had in common is that they all re- did covers of very obscure American songs, whether though they be blue blues R and B songs or you know sort of unrecorded um, unreleased songs written by American real building songwriters. And a lot of those songs they got from going to you know publishers on to Denmark Street, going to like different uh, representatives from you know publishing companies like Screen Gems. Or you know, American those British producers would come to America looking for songs for their for their artists that they were producing to record, and they would pick up demos from America, bring them back to England, have them read, have them do the songs. I mean, Mickey Most did exactly that with Herman's Hermits and the Animals. I mean, he went to England and basically picked up a bunch of demos from the Brill Building, and basically uh, went back to England and had the group record a bunch of a bunch of Brill Building songs. I mean, you know, there the, you know a lot of a lot of stuff that the British Invasion Acts did was stuff that was either a you know american songs that went nowhere like do why diddy by manfred man or i'm in the something good by uh you know hermits hermits i mean both the songs are first one was first recorded by that the exciters the other one was first, first recorded by earl g mccray lead singer of the cookies i mean like they were either american songs that went nowhere or they were unrecorded american songs written by Brill building songwriters that the only versions that existed at that point were demos and then, the, and then, they, and then these demos got fully recorded by these British bands, who kind of did their own, own interpretation of a lot of these songs. Because I've heard a lot of those animals demos from real building songwriters are very different from the, from the from the animals uh, uh, recordings of these songs. Uh, you know, the animals did a lot to change a lot of the the original demo versions of these songs, and uh, you know, it's it, that that did happen quite a bit. I mean, like, it was just, it was one of those things that just, it was, that that was very much the essence of the British invasion, um, you know, and, and look, a lot of these groups, there they, they were really two different camps to think about when it comes to British invasion groups. You had the, the bubblegum poppy groups like Billy J. Kramer and Dakotas, Peter and Gordon, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Hermits, Hermits, I mean, Freddie and the Dreamers, I mean, you know, you had the, the, the poppier side, the poppier groups, and then you had the more hardcore blues rock and roll groups like the Animals, the Rolling Stones, them, and the Yardbirds. You know, so there were the blues to the balls to the wall rock and roll groups, and then you had more of the poppier groups. So there was definitely a divide between both those kind of sounds. And you had the solo artists like, like Lulu, Tom Jones, uh, Dusty Springfield, Patilla Clark. I mean, those they're very much a part of the British invasion too. And you know, it's funny. Another thing you have to keep in mind is that this was before the internet, so a lot of these songs got made it into the hands of American audiences because a lot of these uh, British record labels made deals with a lot of Ameri- American major and indie labels to make sure that their stuff got distributed in, you know, in, into American record stores. I mean, for example, Capitol Records, right, a very big you know, major label in America, actually had deals with Parlophone EMI, and, they, and Capitol distributed a bunch of British acts in America, and a lot of American kids brought bought basically a bunch of uh, EMI uh, groups on on the Capitol label. You know, I mean, is same, and it also goes with the with their subsidiary Tower Tower Records. So, I mean, basically, uh, Capitol distributed a bunch of British acts in America, and that's how you know a lot of these British groups wound up in having success in America. I mean, this was before the internet, before we had Spotify, before we had like DSPs. So basically, like you know, before worldwide digital distribution existed, you had American record labels who had deals with independent labels. I mean, you know, s- you know, sometimes you know, you had other labels like Lori. Lori basically distributed Jerry and the Pacemakers, and they were basically another EMI group. I mean, there there are several different uh, examples of this. I mean, a lot of a lot of you know certain a lot of a lot of groups you know were either one one label in in America and another label in England. I mean, I mean the Animals and Hermits Hermits were on MGM in America, but they were on Columbia EMI in in the UK. And I, th- I don't think Columbia and EMI was related to the Columbia Records in the US. I think they were a totally different label. But still, I mean that's just another example. I mean, and a lot of times. Songs that came out of singles in America and didn't come out of singles in the UK for for a lot of British groups. Like, for example, um, Mrs. Brownie Got a Lovely Daughter came out of a single in America, but in the in, in UK it wasn't a single for Hermit's Hermits. I, I've talked about this before, but now, now that you kind of get the idea for it, now you kind of I kind of refresh your memory. Let's talk about the history of the, the Hollies, because this is a very cool group. I definitely won't talk more about. 
Okay, so the Hollies, you know, were a really interesting and a very cool group. You know, because, you know, like a, most British Invasion bands, they played on their own records. They didn't use any session players. I mean, there were some groups that did, like Hermits, Hermits, and the Kinks. And, you know, and that's another example of a really good balls-to-the-wall rock and roll band from, from the British Invasion, the Kinks. I mean, the same, same camp as the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, and them. I mean, the Animals, the Kinks were really good, sort of punk rock kind of a group. But, um, but I mean, the Hollies, what made them so different? What was so unique about them? Well, first of all, you know, they were very, the, the one sort of distinctive factor about the Hollies that made, that set them apart really was their ability to harmonize because their harmonies were absolutely insane. I mean, they had three-part harmony and most British invasion groups didn't have three-part harmony. Even the Beatles, the Beatles for the most part only did two-part harmony, but the, but the Hollies had three-part harmony and that was really insane. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, their voices were incredible. I mean, their harmonies were just just great. I mean, they had a, but they also had a really good drummer and a really good lead guitar player. And the lead guitar player for the Hollies, I don't think gets enough credit or recognition or due. Uh, his name was Tony Hicks. Tony Hicks was a lead guitar player for the har- for the Hollies, and he did some incredible lead guitar parts. He was a very, very, you know, strong lead guitar player. Very, very, and he was a, and the three, the three singers, which was again, it was a three-part harmony. It was between Alan Clark, Graham Nash, and Tony Hicks. Those were the the three. That three-part harmony they had was just unbelievable. You, like it was just insane how good it was. I mean, very, very tight and very great sounding. I mean, these guys were just incredible singers. I mean, I feel like that's what set them apart from a lot of other British Invasion bands because a lot of British Invasion bands didn't really have the three-part harmony thing going on for themselves. They really didn't. So I think it was it was a very it was a, it was a very different thing that the Hollies had that a lot of other British Invasion groups didn't have, and that was that three-part harmony, right? I think that's what really set them apart from everybody else. But also... They also kind of experimented a little bit more instrumentation-wise than other British Invasion bands. I mean, yes, the Rolling Stones did a lot of that, too, because they had Brian Jones, who was a multi-instrumentalist, but the Hollies did this, too, because some of their records had some different instrumentation from a lot of other British groups. Like, you know, they had one record with steel drums and they had another record with banjo. So, I mean, they really kind of experimented quite a bit in the studio. And, uh, you know, and also, you know, just an FYI, they were on the same label as the Beatles and they recorded in the same studio as the Beatles. They were on the EMI Parlophone label, which meant they recorded at EMI Studios, which is now known as Abbey Road Studios, but they were literally recorded in the same studios as the Beatles. Just an FYI. And uh, I'll get, you know, there's also another really cool connection between the Hollies and another group that you might be familiar with. But I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But, I mean, they were just an incredible group, and I love the sound of them so much. Now let's get into their history. So the Hollies really all started out as a friendship that was made, you know, basically when they were kids in grade school between uh, lead singer Alan Clark and guitar and rhythm guitar player Graham Nash. So they got together in, in grade school, and essentially they they wanted to sound like the Everly Brothers. That was their main thing. I mean, they really wanted to, that Everly Brothers sound. They were huge Everly Brothers fans, and that's what they wanted to sound like. And initially, uh, they wanted to just be like the British Everly Brothers, so they came up with the name Ricky and Dan Young, and they teamed up with a local band called The Fortunes, and this was before the Hollies really were a band. I mean, they were. this was just Alan Clark and Graham Nash. That was the original nucleus of the group. And, uh, you know, the fortunes consisted of Peter Bocking on guitar, John Butch Mepham on bass, Keith Bates on drums, and Derek Quinn on guitar. Derek Quinn actually quit the group and, be- and joined Freddie and the Dreamers, uh, and that also happened in 1962. But then after that, Graham Nash and Alan Clark joined another group called the, the also from Manchester called the Deltas. And by the way, the whole, you know, Graham Nash and Alan Clark, all the members of the Hollies are from Manchester, England. That's where they're from originally. So... I mean, not every group from great British Invasion Man from the 60s came from Liverpool. I mean, some of them came from other places, including Manchester. So in the, initially, the Delsas consisted of Vic Steele on lead guitar, Eric Haydock on bass, and Don Rathbone on, on, on drums. And Eric Haydock also played guitar. And basically, you know, they, they just lost two members. And one of them was a guy named Eric Stewart. Eric Stewart actually later went on to basically uh, join the the Mindbenders, and they were and they were managed and promoted by Michael Cohen. And basically, they you know they 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 were originally called the Deltas, but they the first gig they ever did as the Hollies was in December of '62 at the Oasis Club in Manchester. 
And basically, the reason why they call themselves the Hollies, and this is very important, it was a combination of two things. Uh, Eric Haydock was the guy who suggested the name, and the reason why they call themselves the Hollies, it was actually a tribute to Buddy Holly. And also, they wanted they wanted a Christmassy-sounding name, too. They wanted a name that evoked Christmas. So, they, like, deck the halls with halls of Holly. So, they call themselves Buddy Holly as a tribute to Buddy Holly. And also, they want a Christmassy sounding name, just like deck the halls with halls of Holly. So, they call themselves the Hollies. And that's basically why they call them that. That's the origin of their name, right there, right? And essentially, you know, that was, that was the original nucleus of the group. And what, the, what they did is that just like the Beatles, they played their first round of gigs at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. And that's when they were caught by another sort of uh, A&R guy who was a lot like George Martin, but not George Martin at all. Because George Martin at this point was already working with the Beatles. So the Beatles got signed to Parlophone first before the Hollies. But they were on their way of g- to getting signed to Parlophone, but they weren't quite signed yet. Uh, you know, the, George Martin was already committed to working with the Beatles, so he was unavailable to work with the Hollies. But there was another guy who was basically an assistant for the first Beatles session for Parlophone, uh, you know, helping out George Martin. His name is Ron Richards. And Ron Richards basically said, hey, you know, I will, uh, I'm going to offer you an audition straight, I'm going to offer you an audition tape with Parlophone. But basically, one of the guys in the band, I think his name was Vic Steele, he did not want to be a professional musician, and he left the group in 1963 in April, right? So that's when they that this is when the, the the you know this is when uh basically this is when they 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 the nucleus of the group formed because when Vic Steele left they had, they uh, they auditioned other players and that's when they found Tony Hicks and basically uh Tony Hicks played with another group uh in 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 uh, Nelson Lanchester and this group was called uh the Dolphins and this is in in the Dolphins. This is when a couple guys in the group later are going on to join the Hollies. That group consisted of the drummer Bobby Elliott and Bernie Calvert on bass. Now, Bernie Calvert wouldn't quite join the group just yet, but he would very soon. But Bobby Elliott later also basically became like the nucleus of the group. And uh, basically, you know... Uh, the, the, Bobby Elliott became the main drummer of the group, and you know it was at this point it was Graham Nash on rhythm guitar and vocals, Alan Clark on lead vocals, Tony Hicks on lead guitar and, and harmonies, and Eric Haydock on bass and Bobby Elliott on drums. That was the initial nucleus of the band, right? And the first single that they ever put out was called a song called "Ain't That Just Like Me," which came out in May of '63 on the UK singles chart. That was their first hit, right? And basically. Uh, that that was essentially the first UK hit. And th- here's the other thing I want you to keep in mind about the Hollies, too. You know, before the Hollies hit it big in America in 66 with Look Through Any Window and Bus Stop, they had a whole string of hits in the UK. I mean, they were huge in the UK. I mean, very, very big. I mean, I mean, they had a lot of hits like Here I Go Again and I'm Alive and Just One Look. I mean, they had so many hits in the UK before they had major success in America. In fact, they were kind of late to the game. When it came to British invasion groups hitting it big in America, I mean, when Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas and, and uh, Peter and Gordon and Chad and Jeremy and the Searchers and the Dave Clark Five and the Beatles were all having huge hits in America, you know, the, the Hollies were striking it huge in the UK, but not quite in America yet. They weren't quite blowing up in America yet. So that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Uh, they were having very big hits in the UK, but not quite in America yet. That would come a little bit later for them. So basically, you know, they they, they, they they covered that song. It was a big hit. It made a number number twenty-five in the UK in the UK singles chart. And then they followed up with another hit song called Searching, another American song by the by the coasters, and they hit number twelve. And basically what happened was that one of the one of the guys in the group, I think his last name was uh was his name was Rathbone, he decided to leave. And then basically uh Hicks, you know, basically arranged Bobby Elliott from the Dolphins to replace him as the, as the new drummer for the Hollies, and that's exactly what happened. He became the new drummer for the Hollies in August '63. So they they covered "Stay" by Maurice Williams and Zodiac, a big hit in, in, in number eight in the UK, and then they and then they and then they basically recorded their first album for Parlophone "Stay with the Hollies," and that was and that was num- number two in the UK singles chart, and then they hit it again. With just one look, here I go again. Just big, big hits in the UK. In the, in the UK. Um, here I go again was actually more than likely more one of the one of the real building songwriters from 
the late 50s, early 60s, one of the classic ones, his name is Mort Schumann. Mort Schumann, you know, basically broke up with his old writing partner, Doc Palmas, and moved to London. That's basically what happened. And he wrote with a couple guys in Clive Westlake and Jay Leslie McFarlane. Uh, they had a, Mort Schumann, Jay Leslie McFarlane had a huge, wrote a huge hit for Billy J. Crim in Dakota's called Little Children. And he wrote a song, Clive Westlake, a song called Here I Go Again, which is a big hit for the Hollies in the UK, but not in America, in 1964, in May of 64. And then they covered Just One Look, which was recorded by Joris Troy. And, you know, they had a lot of, a lot of massive hits in, 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 uh, in, in London before America. I mean, e- they were even writing their own stuff. I mean, like, they're really getting comfortable with that, too. Like, one of their biggest hits in the UK before Amer- before they hit America was an original song of theirs called War Through, which came out in September of 64, peaked at number seven. And then in, in May of 65, you know, they, you know, it bubbled under the Hot 100 in the, in the U.S., but it was a number one hit in England called I'm Alive in May of 65. And that's a great song. I love that song. It's so good. I mean, they were just killing it at this point, having huge hits in uh, in in, uh, in in London, but not in America. I mean, I mean, look through anyone. It was actually their first ever hit. It peaked at number four UK, but it actually made in the top forty in America in January '66, number number thirty-two. So, and then also peaked at number three in Canada in January '66. So it was. You know, it was it was basically, you know, they were they were doing pretty well for themselves and they were the first to record a song that actually was was the Beatles were recording for Rubber Soul, a song called If I Needed Someone. And basically they were the first group to record that before the Beatles, actually. George Harrison wrote the song and basically they, they were the first to do it, you know, while they're then that was when the Beatles were recording Rubber Soul. So and also they covered a, a they covered an obscure and American song recorded by first done by E.B. Sands on the Blue Cat label, a song called Can't Let Go. Can't Let Go is written by a guy named a session guitar player who is also getting the produce and getting the production game too. His name is Al Gorgoni and his friend Chip Taylor. They were very close friends. They produced a lot of songs specifically for E.B. Sands, and one of the songs they produced for her was a song called Can't Let Go. Did absolutely nothing in America, right? Not a not a hit at all. But the Hollies covered the song in 65, and in the springtime of 65, you know, February, March, April, it was a huge hit uh, in, you know, winter, winter, spring of 66 in, in the UK for the Hollies, but not in America. Again, a very big hit. So they were just, they were, you know, this is, at, this is when they were really, really just trying to hone in their sound, you know, in the, as, as a group. But they, but the hit, but the, but their big American hit didn't wasn't quite there yet for them. They were, they were honing in their sound as a band, you know, in the very, a very beginning part of their career. But it wasn't, but their big American hit wasn't quite coming for them yet. I mean, they were having huge success in the UK, but not in America yet. So they were kind of waiting on their first huge hit in America. And this song I mean, that I did last week, Bus Stop, was that big hit that they were looking for. And it, and it came from a songwriter that wrote Look Through Any Window. And now let's get into the history behind that song. So let's talk about the songwriter that wrote this song. And let's talk about Graham Goldman. Graham Goldman was one of those British songwriters that actually wrote a lot of really good songs. I mean, Lennon and McCartney weren't the only weren't the only really good British songwriters at that time. I mean, there was John Carter and Ken Lewis, there was Roger Cook and Roger Greenway, and there was Graham Goldman. I mean, there were other really good songwriters besides that were British besides Lennon and McCartney. And, uh, you know, in, and uh, basically Graham Goldman was one of the best British songwriters that never wrote a single hit for the Beatles. Um, you know, he was in a couple different bands, but they never had any hits. And they were, one of them was called the Mockingbirds. And they actually, you know, funny enough, I think they actually did a gig with a band that actually they, that Graham wrote a song for that was a huge hit for, for another group called the Yardbirds. I think they performed on TV with the Yardbirds and they were kind of like, hey, dude, um, why didn't you why didn't you give that song to us? Why didn't why didn't you why why didn't we record this song? Why did you give it to the Yardbirds? But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that that's kind of what Graham Golden was at the time. He was a British songwriter who was writing songs for other British bands who needed material because they weren't strong enough songwriters themselves at that point. I mean, they wrote. I mean, he wrote "Free Love," "Heartful of Soul." Um, he wrote like a, a like a lot of really good songs. You know, you know. I mean, he wrote "Bus Stop." I mean, he wrote "Look Through Any Window," and then he also wrote "List of People" by Herman's Hermits. I did one of those songs. I mean, he wrote uh, "No Milk Today," also by Herman's Hermits. Um, he wrote a bunch of really big hits 
for uh for you know for some British invasion groups. Very very big songs. And the thing is about Graham Goldman's songwriting, and this is very important. Uh, thing to keep in mind about his songwriters, uh, his songwriting is that he was a Jewish guy. He was a Jewish guy growing up in England. He was a British Jewish guy, so a lot of, a lot of his songs had that Eastern European sound to them. That very sort of minor key, kind of a minor and a major kind of a thing that was a very big thing in in Eastern Europe. That that harmony was so big in Eastern Europe, and that was the sound of Graham Goldman. Really, that's what made him so unique because a lot of his songs. We're in minor keys, right? Like No Milk Today, song it's a minor key, but a lot of them actually did the actually went from minor key to a major key. I mean, For Your Love, it's an E minor, then it goes to E major. For no Milk Today starts out in A minor, then it goes to A major. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, he did a lot of key changes in the stuff, but that was a very very strong focal point in the songwriting. It was minor keys, but sometimes he would modulate to major keys, and that was that. It was that Eastern European thing that just made that. That was the sound of his records. I mean, that was this. That was his songwriting. That was his signature style. That Graham Goldman had is that Eastern European sound, almost kind of a Russian sort of a thing going on. But again, that was very much Graham Goldman, right? And that was his thing. And and Graham Goldman actually went on to be, later went on to become a member of 10CC because a couple guys in Wayne Fontaine and the Mindbenders left, and then and then he started they start and they started working with Graham Gold, Kevin Goodley and Lil Cream, and then Eric Stewart stuck around uh, also, and then started writing with Graham Goldman, and then he left, and basically, well, actually. The, the nucleus of Wayne Fontaine and the Mindbenders basically morphed into 10CC. That's what I'm trying to get. That's the point I'm trying to get at. But he, you know, that was in the 70s. But for now, he was a songwriter writing songs for, um, you know, the Hollies and all these other bands. And let me just talk about what inspired him to write this song for a second. Okay, so, you know, his, his dad was the one who actually came up with the first line of the song. Bus stop, wet day, she's there, I say, please share my umbrella. And then he once his dad gave him that line, he basically finished the whole song. He came up with the whole story right then and there. He came up with all those words and all the the, the story, the the melody. It just basically the whole thing just happened immediately. And you know, and that's such a fascinating thing about songwriting. Sometimes the songs take a while to come out and they just take so long for you to write them. But sometimes they just come out and they just they just write themselves and they ha- and the, the inspiration happens and they write and they come out immediately. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind about songwriting is that this is this is, you know, it just happens, you know, it, ba- it just it can happen very, very quickly or it can happen not very quickly. And it can take a lot of time for you to write a song. And basically, the thing is, is that, yes, the time I talked about this before, the timing's kind of messed up. Because in the, in, the, in, the, in the verses he says all that summer we enjoyed it and then like and then by the and then by the and then basically the, then the summer the summer continues and then basically came on the ice is melting, so basically um you know uh, essentially uh, it's it's basically when winter this is what Graham Goldman said about that. He said, um, you know, basically, he said, winter is over, the snow is passed, but this, because the sun is melted, there is no need for shelter anymore under the umbrella. You could say the snow is underfoot, so you don't need an umbrella anyway. It's a poetic license. It could have been snowing, so the umbrella can protect you from the snow as well as the rain. So basically what he's trying to get at is that it's it's kind of important to not really take the lyrics of the song too literally. He's kind of just using a meta, creating a metaphorical thing going on with the song. It's not meant to take, you know, totally 100% literally. And that's why the timing in the song is kind of messed up. But I think he really was just being more, speaking in more metaphorical terms or some more literal terms. And, you know, that's something I have to, I have to work on recognizing a little bit more. Because sometimes, a lot of times I take things, you know, very, very literally. So basically, Michael Cohen was their manager, right? And essentially, Graham Nash, uh, you know, he heard about the song from their manager and then the manager says, "Hey, boy! So this just this little Jewish kid who lives down the street. He's co- he's writing some great songs, and that was Graham Goldman. And Graham Goldman played the song for them. And then when they heard it, I was like, "Oh my God, we have to record this." So basically, what they did is that they they when they when they recorded it, Graham Nash said it only took an hour and fifty minutes to do it. So I think they actually knocked the whole sucker out live. And this is one of those." Uh, Basically, you know, when the, the, the bridge in the song basically happened, you know, the, the inspiration for the, the bridge in the song happened immediately. So basically what happened was that, um, you know, uh, it, it just it was one of those things where it's like 
he he had the whole song written um but he but he actually wrote the song that the middle eight the bridge that every morning uh, we'll see you're waiting at the stop when he was actually on a bus uh you know he you know so basically he he heard he was on a bus and he was thinking about how 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 it would happen like what the what the middle eight would sound like and basically it all just came rushing to him and that's basically when he wrote uh you know that the the middle eight of the song i mean basically like you know he you know he you know he had, a lot of songwriters have to work to finish a song they really really need to just really slave just so that way they can get a good good you know just to finish it but it all just came. The the amazing thing about the song is it all came to him in one instance. Really, it didn't. You know, it just came to him so easily. And that's the fascinating thing about songwriting is that it can either come to you really, really quickly, or it can take a while for you to finish it. And there's a couple other things about this song is that, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, Herman's Hermits were actually thinking about recording this song, and I think they actually, uh, were were the first to record it because. The, the the manager of Mike you know their manager was uh, the Hermits Hermits was married to Graham Goldman's sister and that's how they got a hold of the song before and basically you know and and basically that they, they actually got to the song possibly before uh, the Hollies and basically uh, you know uh, basically you know they pitched the Hermits Herm Graham song Graham Hermits Hermits were kind of interested in the song but Graham didn't think it would be a song that they would be into. And then, and basically, they were like, "Are you kidding me? That's a great song. We want it." And and you know, basically, you know, wh what happened was that, uh, you know, you know, John Paul Jones was the one who sort of rearranged the song, uh, it, you know, and basically, he was the one who came up with that really cool sort of feel for the song, that sort of Middle Eastern that that guitar part, and basically, uh, it's essentially that's how they did it. Um, you know, it's the, the the you know the the hermits hermits allegedly record this song first as an album cut, but basically you know it's I think but the Hollies had the single with this. It came out in June 1966, and by August September it was a huge hit in America. It peaked at number six, and it was a very I mean actually in the top ten. I'm not I forget exactly what chart position it came up with, but it was a top ten hit. It was a very big hit for the Hollies, and and that kickstarted their career. I mean, bus stop was the song that. That I mean, after that they were off to the races. I mean, they continued to have hit songs over and over and over again. I mean, "Bus Stop" was the song that kicked the barn door open for them. I mean, after that, I mean, there were it was just there was just no stop in the Hollies. I mean, they had "Stop, Stop, Stop" after "Bus Stop," which is kind of ironic, kind of funny. And that's kind of a funny song too, because it was actually inspired by the time that Morris Levy took the band to a strip club in New York, and they'd never been to one because there wasn't one in their hometown of England. Actually, if you can believe that, there were no strip clubs in England back in the '60s. Well, it's true. I mean, that's basically what happened, and that, and basically they they wrote the song after being inspired by being in that sort of environment. That's what "Stop, Stop, Stop" was written about. And then the, and then after that, they had "On a Carousel," and then they had. You know, pay you back with interest, and then they had uh, Carrie Ann, which was written about Marianne Faithful. But I think the important thing to keep in mind about uh, this particular thing with the song is that it was one of the last songs they recorded that was a song they didn't write. Right after they recorded Bus Saw and basically released it and became a big hit. And by the way, they were on Imperial Records. That's the other thing to keep in mind about the Hollies is that they were on Parlophone EMI in, in, in England, but in America they were on Imperial. That was a label they were on in America. Imperial was a label originally owned by Luchud, and it was a label out, out of New Orleans and that they had also had offices in L.A. So basically that was, that was, that was their label they were on. They were on Imperial Records in America. So that's the label that the Hollies were on, right? Right. So... I mean, the thing to keep in mind about Bus Stop is that it was a lot, one of the last songs that they recorded and had a hit with that they didn't write. Because um, right after that, all their other hits that came out before that were, I mean, after that, basically were songs that they had written. It was Alan Clark, Graham Nash, and Tony Hicks. It was that trio of you know musicians that wrote the, the bulk of the original songs for the Hollies. And uh, you know they 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 had a they had a lot of success after uh, after Bus Stop, and it was a little bit later too. I mean, the British invasion was still hot, but I mean, you know, it was a, it was a different time for the British invasion. It wasn't the early early '64 days with the Dave Clark Five 
and you know hermits hermits and the animals and you know, the beetles and the searchers and billy j coon and dakota's and peter and gordon was a little, a little bit later on some of those groups are still having big hits by 66 but it was a little bit later on right and then you also had new groups coming in like like wayne fontaine and the mindbenders and the, and the spencer davis group i mean it was the british invasion was still hot i mean patil clark was still having huge hits so it kept going for a little bit but it was just a little bit different by 1966-67 and uh you know it's funny when i look at a lot of the holly stuff it's like they weren't really going for that psychedelic rock sound they were more going for something a little more bubblegum but the harmonies were very very powerful at that time and, and they're more sophisticated very sophisticated very complicated harmonies right and uh it was it was definitely not as cheesy or as corny as a bubblegum bubblegum songs right very 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 different from that but still very very good great musicianship and they just really experiments a lot with instrumentation stop 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 at a banjo and if you can believe that it sounds like electric guitar in that record it gives the indian sort of feel to it even though it's a banjo and on carrie ann there's steel drums on it and i think they're actually one of the first groups because what they did with that song is that they took the steel drum part basically made a tape loop out of it and they basically performed that song live with the steel drum part coming at the exact same part where they needed it because they figured how are we going to do this live if there's if we if we don't have a steel drummer like how are we going to go are we going to hire one for tour and like no we're going to take that steel drum part and basically, you know, incorporate it into our live sets and just make a tape out of it and basically play it exactly when it comes in when we play the song live, which is pretty ingenious if you ask me, because I can't think of any other groups that did this before that. And I think that was the first hit song ever to have steel drums on it, because that was a pretty new song sound at that time. I mean, I mean, the, the Jamaican sound started to seep into the English culture at that time. I mean, with Nilly Small and the Spencer Davis group and the whole Chris Blackwell Island Records thing. I mean that that was the, the Jamaican sound was starting to seep into the to the UK psyche at that point, but I mean they, they the Hollies did a lot to bring that Jamaican sound with those steel drums and bring them into the American popular culture with just you know basically taking that steel drum part and incorporating that into one of their songs. That was very ingenious of them, and like I said, I mean they were basically recorded a lot of their stuff in the same studios as the Beatles. I mean, when they were when the Hollies were recording on a carousel, the Beatles were either when they and they were in like in Studio A at Abbey Road. I mean, th the Beatles were in Studio B, see, recording tracks for Sgt. Pepper. I mean, they were basically whenever the the the, the Beatles would come in and record their stuff. The Hollies would often wait for them to leave and their session to be over so that way they can come in and record their stuff and vice versa. So the Beatles basically initially shared the same recording space as the Hollies. So that's really cool if you think about it. I mean, they all, I would imagine they probably shared the same engineers like Jeff Emmerich and Norman Smith and guys like that. Imagine the same exact engineers who basically uh, originally, um, you know, essentially worked with the Beatles also... Um, you know, recorded uh, songs for the Hollies. I mean, they uh, they shared the same recording space. So it was entirely possible. They had the exact same recording engineers as the Beatles. But yeah, it's really cool. Um, now I'm going to talk about what happened a little bit later with the Hollies too, because their the, their history is very fascinating. And here's another reason why it's so fascinating. Okay, so one more thing I want to talk about before I end this podcast about the Hollies, and this is why I think they were really cool. This is why I think. They were great, and this is what made I think that made them sound very unique compared to other British invasion bands. Okay, so if you think about it, how many sixties groups can you think of lasted past the sixties? I can guarantee you, most of them didn't, and a lot of them did not. I mean, there was like the Turtles. I mean, you had Gary Puck and Unit Gap, the Buckinghams, the Rascals. I mean, there's so many sixties bands that never had hits in the seventies or just were completely done by the 70s right there there were there were history right but how many groups from the 60s can you think of continuing to have hits into the 70s there weren't that many of them i mean you had the grassroots you had the rolling stones you had gladys Knight the pips i mean you had tom jones i mean the fifth dimension a lot of them had hits into the 70s but not all of them well the hollies on you know the thing is about them is that here's one other thing that happened in the Hollies that you know changed a lot for them, but didn't change too much about them because this could have killed their careers, but it didn't. Um, Graham Nash, who was one of the principal songwriters and one of the principal members of the group, he all of a sudden became very dissatisfied with the direction the Hollies were going. He was feeling the experimental sort of free freeness vibes, the the freeform vibes of where music was kind of heading 
in the late 60s with psychedelia and that whole thing of just freeform sort of writing. And that's kind of where he wanted to go with his songwriting. But the Hollies wanted to stick to that bubblegum sound. They didn't want to go with that with that sort of freeform FM kind of vibes that he was kind of feeling at that point, right? And that that unfortunately made him very mad. He was writing he was writing a lot longer songs, very experimental, very weird songs. But the Hollies didn't want him to do that. He they were like, no, we don't want to record songs like that. And there was a lot of friction happening between Graham Nash and the Hollies. And a lot of times they did record songs that Grand Nash insisted they recorded, but when the songs didn't make it, like Dear Eloise or King Midas in Reverse, like if the, when the songs bombed in America, they point the fingers directly back at Grand Nash. They're like, dude, like these songs didn't hit the charts. They were bombs. We're pointing the finger at you, bro. Like you, you, you know, you're the reason why these songs didn't make it because these songs aren't good. And that's and that's and Grand Nash felt very hurt and very disappointed by the rest of the band and he did not want to continue his time with the Hollies after a certain after a certain period of time like I think he left out to Dear Louise basically he got fed up with the group he did not want to be in in a, in in with that group anymore and the thing is is that in the, in the in the 19 in, the, in when the Hollies were still the Hollies right when Grand Nash was still in the group right uh, they they the Hollies did a lot of shows in Los Angeles, and they did some gigs with the Birds and Buffalo Springfield, and that is where Graham Nash met Stephen Stills and David Crosby, and they 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 became friends. But at the time, they were all committed to the projects they were in. But uh, Gr- uh, David Crosby was with, with the Birds, and Stephen Stills with the Buffalo Springfields. They were kind of and Graham Nash was in the Hollies. They were all in different groups. They weren't really. You know, they weren't really thinking about joining, uh, having a having a group thing yet. They were they weren't really con- considering that, right? So they were kind of just you know in the, in committed to their own groups. But then David Crosby got fed up with being in the Birds for very similar reasons why Grand Nash got fed up with being in the Hollies. And then the, the Buffalo Springfield didn't last very long. They broke up. So all of a sudden they were le- they you know Grand Nash decided, look it, I'm done. I'm, I've had it with being in England with the Hollies. I'm, I don't want to... And also, I think what really broke the straw, the straw that broke the camel's back is that Graham Nash wrote a song for the Hollies called America's Express. The Hollies didn't want to record it. They turned the song down, and he's like, that's it. I'm done. I, I you know, I, I visited California. I love the atmosphere of L.A. and North Canyon. I'm going to be in that, that atmosphere from now on. I'm done with England. I'm out of here. I'm done. So basically, he, he left the Hollies. He was done with them. And then he moved to California to be on the West Coast, and basically he became part of that whole scene. And basically, uh, you know, uh, Mama Cass Elliot had a party at Joni Mitchell's house, and Mama Cass introduced Graham Nash to Stephen Stills and David Crosby, and they all of a sudden started singing together, and all of a sudden it was magic. It was unbelievably good sound that they that group had, and they were like, hey, you know, this sounds really good. Let's form a group. And that is exactly what happened. So you had David Crosby from the Birds, Stephen Sills from Buffalo Springfield, and Graham Nash from the Hollies all came together and they formed their own band called Crosby, Sills, and Nash. And they had massive success, mainly in the FM album world, but also in the commercial world too. Very, very big band, you know, very big in the late 60s, early 70s. But, I mean, you know, Graham Nash left the Hollies. But the thing is, is that... You would think that would absolutely kill the Hollies because I think of how, you know, how essential Graham Nash was to their sound. I mean, if you look at the Hollies records after Graham Nash, you can totally hear that he's not there anymore. You know, you can really hear the, the, the lacking of the, his voice because he had a very distinctive voice, Graham Nash. And it was a very, pow- very, very important part to the sound. And you think, oh, man, Graham Nash isn't in the group anymore. What is this group going to do now? Like, he's gone. Well, guess what? Basically, uh, you know, Alan Clark finds Terry Sylvester replaced Graham Nash, and nothing happens to the band. They keep having huge hits, even without Graham Nash, and they get Terry Sylvester to fill in for him, and then they have major hits with He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, and Long Cool Woman with the Black Dress, which is supposed to be a, actually a solo hit. The, they were uh, Alan Clark was thinking about putting that song as his first solo record, but then they decided not to do that. And that's the only uh, Holly's record without any harmonies, and it sounds kind of Queen's Water revival sounding, very sort of, you know, swamp rock and roll kind of a thing, but very different from the Hollies. But then the air that I breathe. So I mean, basically, into the seventies, they were still having huge hits, even without Graham Nash. So I mean, they were they kept going, 
after even after the um you know the uh the the you know that the Grand Nash left. So I mean it was a huge thing, you know, for you know for them to continue to have hits after uh the you know after Grand Nash left. I mean it was just insane how such a big band from the sixties, you know, who wasn't the Rolling Stones to continue to still have massive hits into the 70s. I mean, very few groups in the 60s still continue to have big hits in the 70s. A lot of them didn't. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the Hollies, you know, very good, continue to have huge success in this, into the 70s. And the Grassroots did too, but they're another good example of that. So there's something to be said about how they could lose someone like that in their group, but then they were they, the person got replaced and they, nothing happened. It didn't it didn't it didn't affect them at all. They just continued to have very big hits into the seventies, and it was just it's just amazing, you know, looking at their story. And now uh, Alan Clark isn't in the group anymore, neither is Graham Nash, but still Tony Hicks and Bobby Elliott. And then uh, Bernie Calvert, I think he passed away. I'm not sure if he's alive anymore, but I think, you know, again, like, you know, and Bernie Calvert, it's funny how <laughs> Eric Haydock left the band after he looked through any window. It was the last hit they recorded with the Hollies. And then he left and wanted, you know, became a father, left the music business. And then Eric, Bernie Calvert was working in the factory and says, hey, man, we're about to go in the studio to record Bus Hop. You want to be a part of the group? And he's like, sure, I'll do it. So Bernie Calvert became the principal bass player for the Hollies. He, he was kind of left sort of in the on the he was kind of not the most important part of the group because he felt like he didn't really sing with him he was just a bass player it was more about the harmonies between Graham Nash and Clark and Tony Hicks um you know so I mean Marion again Carrie Ann was about written about Marion faithfully just changed her name to Carrie Ann so I mean look the Hollies were an amazing band you know just really really just solid harmonies Really good lead guitar playing by Tony Hicks. I mean, listen to that intro, Look Through Any Window. It's unbelievable. So good. I mean, I think he could, He, you know, his lead guitar playing is on par with both Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, you know, from the Yardbirds, and also Jimmy Page, a session player, too. So, I mean, he had a great group, great sound, very good harmonies. Ron Richards, really good producer, very underrated, too. In fact, when the Beatles were recording one of their albums and they were fighting with Jordan Martin, George Harrison jokingly said on tape, hey, why don't we get... Uh, Ron Richards to produce this, and of, for, and of course it never happened, but still, I mean, like, he was, they were a few steps away from the Beatles because they were on the same label, EMI Parlophone, and they recorded it in the same studios as the Beatles at EMI Studios, which is now known as Abbey Road. So, I mean, these guys are a very incredible band, and I think they're very underrated, and I hope that you grow to appreciate them as a band because these guys were very, very good as a group. And, uh, you know, and, and if you go on YouTube, you can actually see video from one of the recording sessions they did for one of their songs on a carousel. They actually filmed the recording sessions they did at Abbey Road. So very, very cool. I love these guys so much. They're really good. So that concludes part two of episode number 172 of my sexy music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Williams, and if you learned some really interesting facts about last week's group and you never heard of them before, and you didn't know the connection between Grand Mash and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And you never heard of you never heard of this group of Hollies. You love Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but you never heard of the Hollies. And you're like, damn, these guys are good. I love them. Uh, and if and if you like to let me know if you're a millennial and you're around my age and you, you're discovering this group for the first time, please email me at samltwilliatglod.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. Um, yeah, and please check out my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Also, please listen to EP I put out this year. The the next EP is coming along really, really good. I, I got some basic tracks uh, yesterday back, and I really, really love the sound of them so far. Very, very good. I can't wait for you guys to hear these new songs when they come out because it's going to be next level for me. It's pro studio recordings. They're going to sound amazing. Can't wait to for you guys to hear those songs. But in the meantime... Please go check out the EP you put out last year. Definitely know what you think of it. You can do that by emailing me at samlcwilliamicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iHeartOldies. And also check out the two interviews I did last year with Honk Magazine. Shout out LA. Hopefully, I will do more interviews soon. I'm not too sure when I will do more interviews, but I'm hoping to do more soon. Definitely let me know what you think of those uh, those interviews, and, uh, you know, if it inspires you and want to meet me in L.A., please, i love to meet you in L.A., let's go get coffee, let's go, let's get together, I mean, if you listen to this podcast and you're a fan of it, um, and if you're in L.A., please come meet me, I want to meet you, um, especially if you're a younger person who loves this stuff, 
please email me at samltwilly at icloud.com if you want to do that. Or you can also reach out to me on Instagram or on TikTok, same username, iheartoldies as Instagram. So, yeah, and uh, also go please subscribe to the premium subscription version of this podcast. That link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast, too. Really love it if you can do that because then you'll hear all the cool interview episodes I'm doing right now. And you'd be putting more money in my pockets so that way I can help support myself by doing this podcast. Please go do that. I really appreciate it if you can do that. I would love it if you could do that. That'd be awesome. And uh, also, please, um, what, another thing I want you to do is definitely, definitely um, check out the, the playlist I do for this podcast, the for this podcast. There you'll be able to find here all the songs we've talked about on my show so far, including some of the ones I mentioned in interview episodes. Um, you know, there you'll be able to hear all the different things I talk about, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, all the songs I've done on my show. Please go do that. Um, you can hear all of them. And please let me know what you think of those playlists. You can do that by emailing me at samlcwilliamicloud.com. And you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. Please go do that. And listen to this playlist. Let me know what you think of it. Also, definitely. Check out the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. That's another way you can support me. I have a merch store with all my all this really cool merch that is specific for the show. Please go purchase something from them, and uh, it will ship right to you if you're if you're in America. So please go do that. Um, all you have to do is order it, and it will ship right to your door. Please go do that. Let me know what you think of that mer- those merch items and a logo. Definitely do that by emailing me at samltwilliamicloud.com, or you can also reach out to me in, in, on Instagram or TikTok at iheartoldies. So please go do that. That'd be awesome. So yeah, um, again, thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Um, I'm still waiting to hear back from my hosting service. I'm assuming they're going to give me the same discount, and we can get things rolling with that. So. Love it if you could do that. Definitely, um, you know, let me know what you, th- you know, I'll definitely let you guys know what happens with that. But I do have the money for it now for the yearly. So let's just pray that I keep, I'll be able to keep doing this podcast for a while. And yeah, so definitely uh, I'll give, keep you guys posted on that. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, like I'll keep you guys in loop with my next EP. It's come along really, really good. My next music video, my next show too. I'm hoping I have another one done by the summertime. I mean, another show by the summertime when this when this EP is done and when it's getting ready to release. I'll definitely let you guys know about that. Anyways, um, so I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, the Millennial the Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please. Keep things groovy. <laughs>